You're listening to California Now, a podcast produced by Visit California. I'm Satirius Johnson. That's the San Diego Sweet Soul Band, The Sacred Souls. I talk with three of the band's members later this episode, but first, you might know San Diego as the home of Comic-Con, but did you know you can visit the con year-round at the Comic-Con Museum in Balboa Park? The initial drive for the museum was, how can we replicate or at least offer a sense of the spirit of Comic-Con? How can we give people similar levels of excitement and fandom that they can come appreciate and share that good vibe and that fun? fan spirit all year round. Chris Ryle is a consultant with the museum when he's not publishing comics himself. He and I go deep on how the museum came to be, the culture, the lore, and exhibits from Pac-Man to Spider-Man. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Plus, San Diego vegan cookie entrepreneur Maya Matson joins us to take the California questionnaire. That's all coming up on California Now. Spider-Man. Whether you're a total newcomer to comic book culture or have spent decades collecting rare editions, San Diego's Comic-Con Museum has something to excite you. My next guest helps make sure of it. Chris Ryle consults on exhibits and programming for the Balboa Park Museum. And having worked as a president and publisher at the comic book company IDW, his nerd cred is top tier. Welcome to California Now, Chris. Hey, Soterios. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So listen, you know, the San Diego Comic-Con, it was such a thing for so long before the museum came along. What's the first Comic-Con you attended, and, and, and how much has it changed over the years since? Well, so the very first comic convention I went to, I was probably, I mean, I was pretty too young to remember it. <laughs> um, but the thing that I do remember from it, which I've still got, is I my parents walked me up in front of this old, old man who scribbled his name on a piece of paper for me, and I I didn't know anything about him at the time, but two years later, I found the program guide and it was signed to me from the artist creator of Superman, a guy named Joe Schuster. And so, wow, yeah, like meeting the guy that that sort of started the entire superhero comic book industry was was, you know, a great end to my whole lifetime as a collector and reader and then ultimately writer and publisher. But then as far as the San Diego Comic-Con goes, the first one that I attended was 1997 which I have distinct memories of because that was the first time I met Stan Lee and got him to sign a comic for me. Amazing. I mean, 1997 also is like, you know, that's before the first Harry Potter movie came out, the first Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings film, more than a decade before Iron Man, uh, you know, introduced Marvel Cinematic Universe and superheroes became box office behemoth. So like you're kind of like, you know, you've been in it for decades. Yeah. And I mean, the convention at that point was, it was still pretty large. It certainly wasn't hundreds of thousands like have been in attendance there the last probably 15, 20 years, but it was still a good crowd. It was at the convention center. So it had moved out of the uh, El Cortez hotel or some of the smaller places where it saw in its earliest days, but um, certainly nothing even then like it is now. I mean, it is amazing to kind of like, you know, zoom back and think about how comics have gone from this like nerdy subculture that you maybe kept to yourself at school to nowadays being basically mainstream American culture. I absolutely kept it to myself as a kid. Like even, <laughs> even through high school, I didn't want to tell anybody. And I've since gone back and spoken to my old high school and taught classes on comic book creation. And just that they have classes now that you can take and clubs that focus on like comic book collecting and comic book reading and comic book love is 
is just still so wild to me. Like it's something that I just would have, I wouldn't know what to do with back in the day. Cause yeah, it was always just kind of the, the little secret that you just didn't share with any friends for fear of being mocked. Do you feel it was like Comic-Con had a, played a role in bringing it to the mainstream or were they just ahead of their time with the conventions? I mean, or was it just culture caught up with Comic-Con? Like, how did that happen? I mean, I think it was the convention culture and the films, you know, actually being good and watchable by more than just the hardcore nerds that sort of had these, these parallel um, positive effects on the industry. But certainly the convention, which... You know, once they started going from just comic books and just sort of boxes of old yellowing comics that fans could pick through to including TV actors and film actors and kind of broader pop culture interests started to bring in that broader pop culture base. And so from there, it just exposed everybody to all these different parts of uh, pop culture and made them sort of equate things like, I don't know, Star Wars and D&D and comic books all on a more level playing field and they're stopped being quite the same tiers that there used to be, you know, where moviegoers would make fun of TV fans would make fun of comic book readers would make fun of, uh, I don't know, live action role players and so on. Now it just felt like just a place where everybody that loved anything to a great degree had a place to come celebrate that thing. Yeah. Like I never understood why, you know, they're always like, um, People are always trying to like, uh, you know, say like, oh, are you a Star, Star Trek fan or are you a Star Wars fan? There's always like, yeah, it's like, are you a Beatles fan or a Stones fan? It's like you yeah, can't be Prince both. Prince or Michael Jackson, like you have to pick. Like, right, or, right. Well, even in comics, you know, are you Stan Lee's side or are you on Jack Kirby's side? <laughs> so what can you tell me about the earliest days of Comic-Con? I mean, when it was just getting started, was it mostly really just about buying and selling comic books? It was, although it was also a place you could go talk to creators. I mean, you didn't have to wait in line. Or you didn't have to buy, you know, pricey VIP packages to meet that creator. If you went to some of the earliest Comic-Cons, certainly the earliest ones in San Diego, you could just hang out with Jack Kirby. In fact, a lot of the founders of Comic-Con talk about how they would go to Jack Kirby's house. He would just invite fans <laughs> over and spend a couple hours with them, do sketches for them, or they could watch him draw pages. Like, it was... It was an even more sort of amicable blurring of lines between fan and creator. And, and that's really how it all started. It was just a place where like the fanzine culture, the people that would just write about the things that they love and distribute them just amongst friends would would get together and just with one another share comics, trade comics. You know, it wasn't seen as a place for big business. It was just seen for a place to just come celebrate everything with people who are like minded. Right. And yet it seems like every Comic-Con, the organizers were looking for ways to do something bigger than the year before. Like every year, it just seemed to get a little bigger, a little bigger, and then maybe a lot bigger and a lot bigger. Yeah. I mean, it was certainly, I'm sure, a welcome thing when they could get out of just the hotel basement and, you know, come into where the light is or or where there were chairs for people to sit down. It wasn't (laughs) just a couple folding tables with musty long boxes, but it became, you know, the publisher sending some of their representatives or even eventually people realizing that you could use this fan base who was so vocal and so supportive to even proselytize for you. If you gave them a little bit, you showed them something new, talked about something that was coming up, then they would go out and almost do your job for you and help uh, spread word to, you know, other people who are equally into the stuff. Right. Right. And, and, and these days it's become so popular that it's hard even to get in. I mean, to even get a ticket, you have to kind of like pounce on it when they first become available. That is the downside to it, I guess, is the fact that, you know, there's only so much space in these buildings. And uh, and so, yeah, tickets sell out quickly. They, it, it discourages the drive by or the families who maybe aren't 
steeped in the culture the way you know comic fans are who just happen to notice that comic-con is in town this weekend and want to run down and bring their kid and then find out that they can't so that part's a bummer but i mean the good thing about it is that the convention and the attendees and the uh people that are setting up there and everything have now spilled out into the city like like you say it's gotten bigger every year but it's also gotten to be more and more a part of the whole downtown area where even if you can't get a ticket to the convention center you can experience comic-con culture in all kinds of different ways right and and that's kind of where the museum comes in i mean for all the people who want to experience a piece of that year round the the demand was clearly there for something like this museum yeah, and very much that was that was the initial drive for the museum was how can we replicate or at least offer a sense of the the spirit of Comic-Con, the stuff that gets people so excited over that five-day period? How can we give people similar levels of excitement and um, fandom that they can come appreciate and sort of share that, that good vibe and that fun fan spirit all year round? So I'd, I'd really love to get a sense of the experience at the museum. Let's say I'm walking into the museum for the first time. What do I see? So when you first walk in, probably the first thing you notice is off to your right, there's there's a full Pac-Man arcade, which is, mm-hmm. it's sort of more than just a space with just video games set up. Um, it's been set up with the floor is, is sort of patterned and tiled to look like you walk into a Pac-Man game, you know, with the dotted lines on the ground and sort of the <laughs> iridescent coloring. Um, and so the walls are black, the ceiling's black, and then there's all kinds of different versions of Pac-Man, some historical pieces celebrating Pac-Man. And so you instantly can walk in and and play these games. And um, even before you're buying a ticket, you can sort of experience the different versions of Pac-Man that way. Um, and then if you cast your sight to the opposite side when you first walk in, there's a retail store that has all kinds of books and shirts and merchandise. Um, right now it has an additional cool thing, which is the uh, this big dollhouse prop from the Netflix series Lock and Key, which derives from a comic book called Lock and Key, um, a dollhouse that appeared in one, the second season of the series is there on display, along with some cool artifacts. And so all of that is available and visible to you before you even buy a ticket to go in. Um, right. And the and building it, itself is actually a, a historic building right there in Balboa Park, right? That was basically repurposed for the museum. Yeah, I mean, it's probably getting on 100 years old at this point. So the exterior still has this very ornate, cool um, facade to it. And then once you go inside, yeah, I mean, then it's much more about um, all different parts of pop culture. So once you've bought your tickets and sort of walk into the museum proper, that's when you agree to buy a massive Spider-Man exhibit that runs pretty much through the entire floor of, of the main floor of the building. Um, that's basically, that's, that's the, the current landmark exhibit of the museum. Tell me, tell me about it. Yeah. So it's a celebration of Spider-Man's 60th year. So 2022 is the 60th anniversary of the character. Um, he, he first debuted in a comic called amazing fantasy 15 that was released in August of 1962. And so not only is this exhibit a celebration of that original character, Peter Parker, but, Spider-Man has come to involve so many different other super-powered and spider-powered characters that now, you know, if you're a fan of, I don't know, the old TV series, the animated series, or you're a fan of the Miles Morales version of the character, you're a fan of the sort of alternate reality Gwen Stacy character um, that goes by the name Spider-Gwen or Ghost Spider. There's all the different versions of the character that were introduced in the animated into the Spider-Verse movie a couple years ago. 
you you get a celebration of all those versions of the character. And so walking through the exhibit not only offers you any number of different and very cool photo ops, you know, Spider-Man hanging upside down from the ceiling or Dr. Octopus, one of his main bad guys brought to life and his tentacles that you can sort of hold on to and pose around. Um, but you also get you also get a visual pictorial and video history of the character's creation, including a lot of um, blown up panels from the comics, but also a lot of the original art, you know, dating back to the co-creator of the comic, Steve Ditko, and the other famous artists that took over after he left, a guy named John Romita, and sort of on through the decades. And so you get artwork and visuals and video and sounds. And, and as you make your way through, you eventually get toward costumes and props from the movies. You get to um, a lot of the international pieces and books from, you know, Spider-Man as it was published or as it was, you know, sold as toys around the world. And so you just get this amazing, massive, immersive look at sort of all things in the Spider-Verse. Right. And what were the challenges in kind of collecting all of this? I mean, for a character that has been around for, you know, six decades, it must have been a real feat to kind of draw all of these things together from all over the place. Yeah. I mean, the challenge is kind of one of those fun ones, which is how do we include as many different parts of this character's history and the creator's involvement and sort of all the media extensions and all of that? How do you encompass all of that but also presented in a coherent fashion and in a way that you know i mean no matter what space you're in you're still limited by space to a degree because the character has been around 60 years and there's just so much history mm -hmm. um, so you want to show as many cool parts of that history as you can you want to make sure that you are profiling and highlighting as many of the different creators as you can and so it's a very fun conversation for all of us spider-man fans to talk about you know, does this version deserve prominence? Does this creator, you know, were those contributions great enough that it would play well if it's um, displayed for the mass public to come check out? All of that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and Spider-Man has been such an enduring character. I mean, why do you think that is? I think Stan Lee was probably the guy who settled on that first. Um, but whoever it was that said it was very smart in that Spider-Man was this, not only was he a kid, you know, where most of the time superhero kids were the sidekicks. They weren't taken seriously as a hero on their own. They were the guy who sort of had to carry water for the bigger, you know, adult superhero. Right. Spider-Man was a teenager and Spider-Man was very much, could have been anybody under that mask. Like this whole magic was not knowing his secret identity and not knowing who he was. And so therefore he was everyone, you know, he was everybody who does the right thing or stands up against the bad guy or you know, uses whatever power they have responsibly. And so certainly, you know, he had, he was still a male character, which is why it was great when, when the mythos expanded to involve a lot of different female spider characters. But um, I think a lot of it was that, is that he was a younger hero that younger readers could really sort of relate to. And he was, until he took that mask off, he was whoever you wanted him to be. That is so much more relatable. Like as a, as a kid reading it, you could be anybody and just relate to this character. Because as you say, anybody could be under the mask. And he was also a kid who, like he had family problems. His his aunt that he lived with was, first of all, she was ancient. Like I don't know that most <laughs> people in the real world have aunts who were uh, 60 or 70 years right. older than they were. Um, but she had all these ailments. They never had enough money like to buy her medicine. And so, you know, he had to help support her. He had to 
maintain a secret identity because he couldn't let the family come at risk. And, you know, he had dating problems. He was bullied. He was, he had all the kind of foibles and things that a lot of kids experienced growing up. And I think, again, that's a lot more relatable than the indestructible guy from another planet or the super millionaire who, you know, can buy his way to superherodom. So what would you say, I mean, it's, I know it's hard to to do this, but what would you say are a couple of like really amazing highlights of the Spider-Man exhibit? The great thing about that question is no matter who you ask, they're going to have a different answer. So some people are going to say that there's a one of the costumes from the movie, the Andrew Garfield character's costume is there on display. For me, you know, as a as a kid who grew up reading this stuff in the 80s, for me to be able to see the original art from the guys who created this stuff, you know, Steve Ditko was this sort of mythical, reclusive character that, like, he hadn't been photographed since, like, 1965. And so for me to see artwork from him that, you know, came off his drawing table, that was him and Stan Lee as the writer just making it up as they went along, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Every issue they would create this amazing new villain that even 60 years on is still part of Spider-Man's main stories that they're telling in comics and in film. And so to see those original pieces where you're aware that, like, all of this, like everything Spider-Man became in the last 60 years started with just two guys kicking around an idea of a kid in a costume and <laughs> actually seeing that stuff, you know, seeing those pieces of art on the walls is so exciting because you can see, you know, if there were blemishes on the page, if he whited something out or if, uh, I don't know, if if they changed dialogue or he had to patch one of the images and draw a new piece that was pasted on top of it, like the process behind sort of the larger than life part of the characters, the thing I find so exciting. Yeah, yeah. I saw a photo of one of the exhibits that showed kind of, you can kind of see like this back and forth between the two where you can see this collaborate this collaboration going on where they kind of, I kind of think of it like when you um, talk to a musical artist and you there's always the question like, well, do you write the lyrics first or do you write the music first or does it happen all together and everybody has a different process and you kind of see that process with, you know, this Spider-Man, uh, you know, the writing of the comic book, you see kind of like a lot of back and forth between the illustrator and the author. And and it's it's really kind of cool to see how, you know, it just kind of all comes together. It is because it, it not only shows you that the end result was sort of greater than the sum of its parts, which is the thing that makes the conversation that we were saying about picking a side, you know, are, do you side with the writer, Stan Lee, or do you side with the artist, Steve Ditko or Jack Kirby and whatever this I don't know, perceived battle is in people's minds. <laughs> yeah. You you side with both because what they created together was so much better than things that they were doing on their own. And the other reason I find that stuff so inspiring is because it shows kids that sure this stuff is is up on your big screen now and it takes, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of people to do the digital effects and everything. But it all it took was a couple guys with a piece of paper and and a pencil and a pen. And that's how you make this stuff. Like you don't you don't need to have money. You don't need to have technology. You don't need to have anything but an idea and just kind of the desire to bring it to life on paper. And then you never know what's going to happen from it. So I just, I find that so inspiring too, that it just shows people that the creative process is something that is open to anybody and everybody who might want to tell a story. Yeah. Very inspirational. What, what's one other highlight that, you know, if you had a friend uh, going to the exhibit or maybe somebody who's not um, all, not a big fan, but just a general fan. What is something at the Spider-Man exhibit that you think they definitely have to see? All right. So, so I wanted to be the purist, right? And like say that the Steve Ditko artwork or, you know, this process piece is cool. And, you know, I'm, I'm above just the, the simple mass reach stuff. 
which totally isn't true because when I walked in there and I saw this Dr. Octopus brought to life, uh-huh. you know, and his, his metal sort of octopus arms were actually fabricated. And they're things that you can touch and see three dimensionally. Like that's so cool. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's also cool because as a, as a big Spider-Man nerd, like I instantly could identify what the cover, you know, what the issue number was and who the artist was that drew that exact piece of art that became this three-dimensional Dr. Octopus. But right. You know, I'm, I'm as much a sucker for the three-dimensional photo op stuff as anybody else. And so <laughs> when you're seeing a full sort of fully realized fleshed out Spider-Man or Dr. Octopus hanging there and you can sort of take pictures with it and almost envision that you exist in the same New York as they do, like that's just always so much fun. Yeah, absolutely. So that Spider-Man exhibit sounds amazing. But you also mentioned uh, a pa- this, the Pac-Man exhibit and it, it sounds almost like you're stepping into an arcade. I, I don't know if you have to bring your own quarters or are the machines on, you know, auto Machi- machines are on and available and free to anybody who comes in. So That's no, so cool. you, uh, no quarters necessary. You don't have to you know, <laughs> put one on top of the game to reserve. You have a next shot at it. Like you can just come in and play and have fun with that. Oh, that's so great. So how do you, how do you think like comic book culture informs or or ties in with video game culture in Pac-Man? I mean, I think it's more of, of similarly to, to Comic-Con having this broader um, drive to celebrate all things pop culture. Like it's called Comic-Con, but Comic-Con has always been a thing about celebrating, you know, not just the comics, but TV and film and science fiction and fantasy and all these different um, genres and sort of these different storytelling forms. And so video games and comics have always coexist, you know, since the early like Atari days when you could play Mm -hmm. this incredibly lame Spider-Man game that I still (laughs) remember really fondly. You could play an even worse E.T. game or Indiana Jones and Batman, like all of these, these characters exist as video games almost from the earliest days of video games. And so, again, not only is, is the museum a celebration of and a sort of a deeper dive into all these different parts of pop culture, but those things not only have, have existed alongside one another, but we've certainly found that, you know, if you're a fan of one, if you're a fan of reading about characters, you certainly are also become a fan of playing as those characters, too. Right, right. And, you know, for folks who, who don't see themselves as gamers or big fans of comics generally, what do you think will, will resonate with those people about the Pac-Man exhibit? I mean, it's pretty hard to find people that that didn't play Pac-Man back in the day <laughs> yeah. or at least weren't aware of it. Um, the good thing is now, you know, unlike something like Elden Ring or these new games that require you to really know what you're doing and sort of dedicate hours of your life to you know, going all the way through the story and trying to complete the game. Right. Like Pac-Man was a thing that it didn't matter who you were, how old you were, how experienced you were. You could walk up and like anybody could immediately grasp the eating of dots and the avoiding <laughs> of ghosts. And so it is one of those things that I think has that broad appeal because you don't have to be steeped in any kind of gaming culture to be able to uh, have fun with it and know what it is and sort of enjoy seeing it. And I mean, just hearing the sounds like, that also is the sound of so many generations of people's childhoods now. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's just fun to hear that playing as you walk in too. Right. I'm sure for a lot of people, it's just like a blast from the past that they just can't resist walking into the arcade there. And it does. I don't know if you have any uh, 
knowledge of the old game or the old song Pac-Man Fever. Oh yes, I do remember that song. Yes. <laughs> I promise people that it is not playing when they walk in, so you don't have to worry about <laughs> that terrible earworm getting stuck in your head. Right. We were actually talking about that song as we were, when we were talking about the exhibit amongst ourselves here at the podcast, and we we're like, maybe we'll play that song, but maybe we won't. I don't know. <laughs> There's so many other things at the museum. I mean, there's this, um, the Rocketeer exhibit. Can you talk about what's what's special about that? Yeah. And so, you know, talking about things that sort of reach a broader audience at Comic-Con, like Pac-Man and, and Spider-Man. Um, and the, one of the other lead exhibits when the museum first opened was the Gene Roddenberry Star Trek celebration. There's also a strong desire to, you know, keep a focus on Comic-Con culture and expose people to comics and creators that maybe not everybody knows quite as well as Spider-Man. And Mm so, you know, a lot of people know the Rocketeer from the Disney movie in 1990. um, But, you know, I don't know that they all know that the character and its creation have roots in comic books that it you know, was first a comic book character. And it was a character created by a guy named Dave Stevens, who as far as comic creators go, he had a relatively short run, but the work he created was not only just, gorgeous and timeless but it was also just work that not everybody saw because it it wasn't you know he wasn't around for quite as long as as creators who've been in the business for decades and so being able to show his original art and show the rocketeer character as it first appeared in comics but then also make people aware of who else dave stevens was he had a long time history with comic-con even before he went pro as an illustrator he was drawing T-shirts and badge art or program art for the convention. And so, you know, he was involved with, with Comic-Con um, from its earliest days. And then he went on to storyboard things like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Michael Jackson's Thriller video. Did some animated work on like the Godzilla animated series back in the day. And so, again, I think it's important to not only celebrate the work of somebody who had that kind of... Uh, diverse output but also just make people aware of it people might know the name dave stevens from rocketeer but i don't think as many people know about all these different parts of his career too so it's it's great to be able to not only show all that but what we had access to thanks to his sister who manages his uh his estate is you know personal artifacts we had his drawing table and there's just something about seeing like the artist's actual drawing table that's you know, filthy with ink and I don't know, razor blade cuts, you know, from trimming pages or tape and paint and ink and all of these things that, that just sort of, I don't know, show you the amount of work that he did at that drawing table over the years is just so cool to see that stuff as much as the end result too. Yeah, absolutely. I always love to see like the process behind the creation. So that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Gene Roddenberry. I'm a, I'm a big sci-fi fan, probably more so than comics. So I'm a big Trekkie as well. Of course, you know, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of, of the original Star Trek. And um, wh- what's that exhibit about? Yeah. So it was Gene's 100th anniversary or 100th birthday. Um, and so the Roddenberry Foundation, which is run by um, Gene's son, Rod, they opened up basically their personal archives too. And so we were again able to do kind of a deeper dive into the creation of Star Trek and Roddenberry's life and his work and some things that, you know, there's been a lot of different Star Trek exhibits showing artifacts and phasers and costumes, but I don't know that there's ever been one that showed things from such a personal degree. You know, you, you had 
his wife, actor Majel Barrett's, you know, original um, Star Trek script with their notes to each other about the characters. And you had these different pieces from, I don't know, famous authors or creators who wrote Gene letters about Star Trek when it first aired. You had all these things that were just a personal part of his his legacy and his collection that we were able to display. And again, I think that that continues to be a big part of what the museum wants is not just to show off cool pop culture stuff, but also show exhibits and pieces that that bring you into the process and bring you into the creation, bring you into the creator's life and kind of give you a deeper look and a more resonant view of the people behind the property. Um, because the other things that are at the museum, there's a classroom setting, There are there's a theater where we can give talks and talk to kids and we can sort of dig deeper into all of these things. And so having the exhibit be able to to evidence those things um, is a great starting place to to be able to then add on all these programmatic extensions that further discuss like Roddenberry's legacy. Yeah, I, I really love that kind of like that peek behind the curtain, because I think when, you know, when we when we watch a movie or we read a book, you know, it's we, we're seeing that final product and we maybe don't even realize like how many drafts or iterations or changes happened along the way. And we just think like, well, it would just came out that way. It's just like, you know, full, fully formed. And it really it just kind of it is inspirational to people who may want to, you know, put down on paper something that they that they're inspired to do. Yeah, because again, Gene was rejected when he first tried to sell Star Trek. And I mean, it's it's really fun when you when you see like the volunteers talking to some of the museum attendees and they talk about the fact that Star Trek wouldn't exist if not for um, Lucille Ball mm-hmm. and the fact that her production company, you know, basically saved the show and allowed the show to actually happen. And just just that kind of stuff, that kind of trivia, or those kind of details that that, you know, people that are sort of aware of Star Trek as just this big TV and movie franchise aren't necessarily aware of. You got to love Lucy. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I I know it's hard to talk about upcoming exhibits before they're official, but is it your sense that the Comic-Con Museum hopes to do similar things in the future? Yes. And you're right. Like, while I can't name some things, like we we know some of the big exhibits that are going to be coming in in 23 and not only is it exciting because there are things that do really further the museum's initiatives, which is, you know, digging into these different parts of pop culture and offering things that not only spotlight the property, but also the property creators and, you know, offer these different types of things that we can use for educational purposes. But the other thing that's going to be happening to a greater degree, too, is a thing that we've been wanting to do from the start, which is sort of make the museum more of a hub for fans and pop culture nerds and collectors and all of that by offering more evening programming um, in the form of, I don't know, book clubs or places where people can come show out their own collections. Like you meet so many people that come to the museum that go, you know, I've got this piece that my parents acquired. They were close personal friends with this famous, you know, whoever. And you go, oh my God, that's great. It's not enough for an exhibit on its own, but like, to be able to do things at night and let those fans come in and sort of do a show and tell, showing off this one of a kind piece and telling the story behind it, I think is a very cool thing and kind of brings the fans into almost their own, you know, being able to make museum artifacts out of their own pieces and just doing more and more things like that, film festivals and giving talks around exhibits or talks before and after films. Um, 
or books or previewing that week's new comics. You know, all those kind of things are things that uh, we're building toward too, just to, you know, not only give you cool stuff to come walk around and look at, but then also cool things to come talk about and, you know, good like-minded people to meet and hang out with. There's such a big like fan fiction scene as well. I also, I, I feel like, you know, the museum in a way with all of its like educational things, lectures and talks and, and workshops and things, I feel like you're almost like helping the next generation of creative people produce stuff. Yeah. And in fact, that's very much something we want to do also is, is have those kinds of classes, you know, talk about comic book creation and, and, you know, even if people don't want to draw by hand and they'd prefer to just, you know, scribble electronically on their tablet or something like there's all kinds of different ways to make comics now. And when I was a kid, I used to think, well, I'm not in New York. I can't hop on the train and go to Marvel comics and pitch them on stuff. So I have no chance of getting into this industry. And that's, I mean, it was, it was somewhat of a fallacy then. And certainly now, you know, the world, the entire world is open as far as that goes. And so you can, I don't know. We just want to make people aware that you can make stuff. You can make stuff and get it seen and hopefully, you know, get it sold and, and encourage the art of creation. Absolutely. And, and you know, like you, the, the community is already there, but you're kind of like, you're amplifying it. You're just helping to make connections with people. You're strengthening it really. That's it too, is, is we understand that Comic-Con is five days and that a lot of people aren't able to get in. Um, so now, you know, we really want you to have this space where you can just come live and breathe comics and pop culture whenever you want to. That is really cool. So Chris, you know, we'd be remiss not to ask, what have you been working on lately outside the Comic-Con Museum? So I still publish comics too. Um, I left IDW in 2020, but then I set up an imprint at a publisher called Image, who is currently the third largest publisher after Marvel and DC, you know, home to books like The Walking Dead um, and Saga and other big books like that. And so they gave me basically my own corner. So I have an imprint called Syzygy where I'm only doing a few books a month, but it's a lot of fun to just keep, you know, keep a hand in the comic publishing as well. And, you know, speaking of the connection between comics and video games, I've also, I'm helping um, consult on a new video game project. And so, yeah, again, just trying to, to stay busy, you know, telling stories and helping celebrate this art form in as many different ways as I can. Well, that is so great. And this conversation has been really fantastic. Um, Chris, thanks so much for joining us on California Now. Yeah, real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Chris Ryle consults on exhibits and programming for the Comic-Con Museum in San Diego. They're online at comic-con.org museum. As always, we'll have links to all the places we talked about on today's episode and lots more on our website, visitcalifornia.com podcast. This is California Now. Up next, our California questionnaire segment with Maya Madsen, the founder of Maya's Cookies, based in San Diego. The California questionnaire is a brief survey designed to unlock what residents love about living in the Golden State. Longtime listeners know it first appeared on the show when I interviewed Kevin Costner last year. This episode, Maya narrates her way through the questionnaire herself, documentary style. Enjoy. Hi, my name is Maya Matson. I'm the founder and CEO of Maya's Cookies, a gourmet vegan cookie company. And we are America's number one black-owned gourmet vegan cookie company. And we're based in San Diego, California. What is my favorite Golden State splurge? One of my Golden State splurges is to get up extra early on a Saturday 
go downtown to Little Italy in San Diego where the farmer's market is and explore the offerings of the vendors. Then take the ferry across the bay to Coronado Island, rent bicycles and explore the island and have an awesome lunch at the Hotel Dell and enjoy the beach. If I could decree an official state culinary experience, I'm gonna have to go with Taco Tuesday. I think Taco Tuesday is already an unofficial holiday. We celebrate it with a vengeance down here in San Diego since we're so close to the border. The Baja cuisine is amazing. You have fish tacos, you have carne asada tacos, you have vegan tacos. I happen to be vegan, so our vegan taco scene down here is amazing. There are so many taco shops and mom and pops. And one of my family's favorite taco shops is called Taco del Gordo down in the Chula Vista region of San Diego. I don't know what generation they're on, but I know it's family run and the line is out the door. There's so much love that goes into what they're creating there. You can feel it, you can see it, the smells, all of it. It's an experience. So if you're coming to San Diego, that's where I recommend you go. Best California song, hands down. It's Tupac featuring Dr. Dre. California love. I'm not a great singer, but when you hear that song on the radio, you instantly think of driving down the freeway with top down music blasting and it's just California what is the stereotype that holds most true the stereotype that holds most true is that we love our food in California we have the Central Valley where the most amazing produce is grown and we also are close to the border close to Mexico and Baja style Mexican food in Southern California is amazing so I think we love our food. The Bay Area, the sourdough bread in the Bay Area is maybe because I'm hungry right now, but the air just makes the sourdough bread taste so good. And having a bread bowl in that crisp, salty air with soup in it is just amazing. Or stopping at one of the roadside restaurants along I-5 in the Central Valley that's using all the produce from that area. There are some super awesome finds, but also one of my favorites would be the Santa Inez region. And there is an amazing little town called Solvang where you can get wine country, farm to table food, and anything your heart desires, high quality farm to table. That's a big thing here. So a dream California day to me would be hopping on a plane, taking the one hour flight up to San Francisco, staying in the financial district at one of the many high-end hotels, slipping into a robe and getting spa treatments and enjoying the city, the downtown vibe, hopping on a cable car to tour the city. I love going up and down those steep streets. It's scary sometimes because I do have a little bit of a fear when the cable car is going up and then it's about to drop down. And I would top it all off with an amazing vegan meal at one of my favorite restaurants in the Bay Area in San Francisco. And it's called Shizen Sushi. It's a vegan sushi spot and it is so good. There, you just, everything. I think I spent the day there with my son and I want to say we ordered about 
10 different rolls because everything looked and tasted so good. We wanted to try it all. So that would be my dream day. And also because my son lives in the city, so I'd be spending it with him if I were to fly up there. This has been the California Questionnaire. I'm Maya Madsen. You can find out more about me at mayascookies.com. And thank you. You can find dozens of California questionnaires on our website, including surveys filled out by Kristen Bell, Francis Ford Coppola, Alex Honnold, and even yours truly. That's right, I took the questionnaire too. It's all waiting for you at visitcalifornia.com. Up next, this episode's musical guest, The Sacred Souls. Let's hear a little bit of their song, Can I Call You Rose? That's the San Diego band The Sacred Souls playing their song, Can I Call You Rose? I'm joined now by three members of the group. Can I get you all to introduce yourselves and your roles in the band? Uh, my name is Josh, and I sing in the band. Uh, my name is Sal. I play bass. My name is Alex. I play drums. Well, welcome to California Now. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having us. So, you know, I saw on Instagram, uh, your band bills itself as San Diego Sweet Soul. Um, how would you describe that sound to someone unfamiliar with your music? It's a little different from, uh, I guess, like Motown Soul, Sweet Soul. I guess you can consider that kind of like the lowrider, oldies style of soul. More of like the ballad the ballad yeah. side of, of, of soul, you know, rather than a northern or, you know, the more up-tempo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of has this sort of like timeless quality to it. Where does that come from? Man, I, th- I think soul music in itself is timeless. So, yeah, we listen to a lot of old 45 records and most of them are like kind of on the obscure side. <laughs> so no, so anybody I would have heard of maybe? Or I mean, who are, the, who are your influences? I mean, for me, I guess I could say growing up, I was listening to, to classics, you know, like Brent Wood, Sunny and the Sunliners. Like Delphonics. Yeah, Delphonics. And uh, all those groups, it starts there. And then, you know, you kind of just naturally start digging in a little bit deeper and getting into some of the more obscure underground records that not a lot of people kind of come by naturally. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that song specifically, Can I Call You Rose, where did that idea originate? It started as uh, an instrumental that Alex had put together. So it was fully, it was almost fully fleshed out, I think, from beginning to end when it comes to form and stuff. We had a jam session and... uh, I was sitting there trying to write lyrics and melodies and I needed some kind of a topic or whatever. So there was a blanket in his garage, the studio we recorded in and it had roses on it. And so I just kind of used that as material, a rose and how it can be used as an image or an ideal for love. That's really cool. And you guys are all based in San Diego, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where where exactly in the area there? This is Sal. I grew up in Imperial Beach. Alex grew up in Otay, yeah? Yeah, Otay, Chula Vista. I'm from Sacramento, but I moved to San Diego about five years ago, and uh, I live in City Heights. I noticed in the video for Can I Call You Rose that you feature 
signage from a couple of specific San Diego communities like Imperial Beach and Barrio Logan. Do those areas hold any special meaning for you? Like I said, I grew up in Imperial Beach, so and that's where the um, the backyard, you know, the backyard scene that was in my backyard. Oh, really? And those are, you know, my dad's friends and all that. So <laughs> what's the story behind the group's name, The Sacred Souls? That was uh, the doing of my dad and a good friend of ours, Mike Umholtz. They're soul collectors and we're always collecting uh, 45s and they were brainstorming a new collective that they were talking about um, putting together. They were going to name it the Sacred Soul Club. And we it was right, right in the middle of when me and Alex were pretty much telling them that we were going to start a band. So they were they were pretty excited about it. And they said they, they got the perfect name for us. And it pretty much was. <laughs> you just switched out the the yeah the yeah and then yeah then we added um the in there just to kind of keep it classic and to pay homage to the midnighters the midnighters a lot of the the chicano groups from the 60s and 70s you know the video for can i call you rose is really fun i mean what's something you think a lot of people don't realize but would enjoy knowing about how that all came together i actually do have a fun fact that we were so close to getting poured on that whole time that we were in the back in the backyard with everybody's cars out there and everybody dressed up and dancing with the turntables out, all exposed to the, to the water and the rain. Oh no. Uh, the news had said all day, it was like, it could, it could rain or it could not, <laughs> you know, cross your fingers. But as soon as we finished our last shot of the, of the video, it came down on us pretty hard. That's so funny. Well, you guys looked very relaxed. It didn't look like you were worried it was going to rain on the, all the equipment and everything. So <laughs> yeah, booze will do that. <laughs> Well, guys, this has been really great. Thank you so much for joining us on California Now. Thank you. Thank, you for, thank you for having us. Alex Garcia, Sal Samano, and Josh Lane of the San Diego-based band The Sacred Souls. Their website is thesacredsouls.com. That's the with two E's. Their debut album of the same name came out in August and can be found in all the usual places. Let's go out now with a bit more of the song, Can I Call You Rose? This is California Now. Meditating on love and you and roses and the universe told me put it in a love song. Thank you for listening to California Now. We hope to see you in the Golden State soon. This podcast is produced by Visit California. I'm your host, Satirius Johnson. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in trip planning mode, be sure to check out the California Now blog. It's the perfect companion to the conversations you just heard on this podcast. You'll find timely and topical trend stories, the latest updates and local events, and much more. It's all at visitcalifornia.com now. That's visitcalifornia.com now.